our studies in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, marching through chapter 15. Today we're picking up in verse 24 and studying, looking through the end of verse 34. That's going to be our sermon passage for today where we're really looking, but I am going to begin our reading today in verse 20 uh, to get the rest of this thought that we're stepping into in verse 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, reading... Uh, beginning in verse 20. You can find that on page 961 uh, of our cart Bibles. Before we go to God's Word, please join me as we go again to His throne of grace in prayer. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, great God and King, we pray that You would speak now for Your servants are listening. You would draw our eyes to Jesus, our risen and ascended Lord. You would give us a taste for heaven, that we together would long for that day when He will return, and He will come again on the clouds and with the voice of the trumpet and the archangel. We thank You, O Lord, for Your Word, which teaches us of Jesus Christ, and we pray that You would use this Word. O Lord, make us wise unto salvation, bind up broken hearts, Teach us your ways. Lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning to read in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing today. Well, last week I gave you a warning 
Last week, as we were setting up the reading of 1 Corinthians, I warned you that we were going to be uh, taking a few of the cars of Paul's train of thought and uh, unhitching them uh, from the beginning of his train of thought and stopping right in the middle of one idea between verses 23 and 24. There is one idea that connects them, and we were intentionally splitting that in half. And we did that, uh, I'll admit, because we simply didn't have time to deal with what comes, what begins to come in verse 24. We didn't have time to deal with the implications of the resurrection for all of creation. That's what we find beginning in verse 24. This whole passage, beginning in verse 12 and going on to the end of verse 34, this mini-section within the chapter is dealing with the implications of the resurrection. If it is true or if it is not true, what does it matter? And The majority of this has been dealing with personal implications. And in fact, at the end, he's going to come back to personal implications. But Paul makes a bit of a diversion, and he starts to talk about what the gospel means for all of creation. And we didn't have time to talk about all of creation. You know, there are some people that seem to not be able to answer a question about one thing without telling you about at least 15 other things. And so it's the kid who asks his dad, hey, how does a bicycle work? And suddenly he's trapped in a conversation that has to do with all sorts of physics-y things and gear ratios and momentum and gradients and gravity and practically the entire history of human transportation up to that point. Well, that's a little bit like what Paul is doing here. In verse 24, he says, now let me tell you about everything. It is what the resurrection has to do with, by the way. The resurrection has something to do with everything. It has implications for individuals and for people, but unless we understand what the resurrection means for everything, we can't possibly grasp what the resurrection means for us. Today, we're going to follow along with Paul's train of thought, and that means that we're going to do two things. First, we're going to take a step back with Paul. We're going to zoom out, and we're going to get the big view. If you are accustomed to using Google Maps, you know that you can back up so far that you can see the entire map, but uh, your dot is still right there in the center. That's what we're going to do with Paul. We're going to back up and see all of creation, the entire cosmos, and right in the center, that little red dot marking the resurrection and where it is and how it interacts with all of these other things. And then we're going to zoom in. We're going to go right down to Street View, where you can see the picture of where you're going and what all the buildings look like, just in case you get lost, and how they're laid out next to one another, and you know where you're going. We're going to do these two things. We're going to see, Lord willing, the implications of the resurrection for all of creation, and the implications of the resurrection for all of your life. Let's start together looking at what the resurrection means for creation. And what we see in verses 24 through 28, I think, is that the resurrection reveals God's reign, God's reign over all of creation. There's a chain reaction that's taking place in verses 23 and 24, three things that come sequentially one after another like dominoes. When you knock over the one, all of the others follow. It begins with Christ's resurrection. He's the first fruit. And then when he comes back, secondly, it deals with the resurrection of his people. And then, Paul says, comes the end. And these three are linked. Because the one has happened, the others are inevitable. Jesus' resurrection marks the beginning of a steady march to what Paul calls the end. This is why the New Testament, by the way, calls the, the days that believers live in now 
the last days. It's a pretty big category. It involves everything from the time that Jesus Christ came in humility in the manger to when he will come again in the glory of the clouds. But there's a time called the last days, and it's a time of waiting and watching and looking and longing for God to do all of the things that he has said he will do. And in these days, for 2,000 years, the church has prayed the same prayer. Amen, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's a time of looking and longing, these last days. And so we pray, come quickly Lord Jesus, finish the work begun in Bethlehem. Complete the conquest of Calvary. Come, Lord Jesus, our risen and ascended Savior. That's what we pray. That's what we long for. First Jesus, then his people, then the end. You need to know that when Paul says the end, uh, he doesn't just mean that which comes last in the sequence. That's one way of talking about the end. At the end of the movie, you watch the credits. That's because the movie's all over. There's nothing else to see. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. No more enemies anywhere in all of God's creation. That's one way of speaking about the end. But we could also ask about the end together with our Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? What's man's purpose? What are we here for? What's the point of all of these things? And that's what Paul is talking about here. When he says, here comes the end. It is the culmination of all that God has planned all of his purposes for humanity and all of creation, all of these purposes will be completed. First, Jesus' resurrection, and then when he comes, our resurrection, and then comes the goal, the purpose. Now, already this is a challenge for some of us. This is an enormous statement of how we ought to view everything that exists. It's what's commonly called a worldview today. And this was a challenge to the worldview of Paul's day. For Paul, in his time, the Greeks basically thought of history and and everything that was in a cyclical pattern. It was the same record playing the same few songs over and over and over and over again, unto infinity. Paul says, no, 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 no. There is a purpose. There's an end and a goal that the Lord has in mind. It's not just the same thing happening over and over again, but God has a purpose, and he is moving toward that purpose, and all of his purposes revolves around Jesus and his work. This is also a challenge to the worldview of our day. That materialistic, scientific, secularistic worldview, that ideal that there really, you know, when we get down to it, there is no discernible purpose to any of it. We're just matter in motion, moving about. We're all just biological matter composed, uh, when you get down to it, of chance and unguided evolution. And if that's true, then Macbeth said it pretty well. Life's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, but signifying nothing. Paul says, no, 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 no. Life's a tale told by the Creator. And what it signifies is his ability to bring to fruition all of his plans for all that he has made. The resurrection has something to do with everything. It speaks of purpose and fulfillment. And it's the resurrection that sets in motion this chain reaction, the fulfillment of all things. Okay. So what's the fulfillment we're waiting for? What's the purpose God is working? 
We could answer that with the word that Paul uses so often in these verses. Verses 27 and 28, six times he uses the same word. It's the word subjection. God's purpose for all of creation is that by subjecting everything to Jesus, he will subject everything to himself. It's the resurrection that sets that in motion. The resurrection reveals God's reign over everything he has made. Everything shall be subjected to him through Jesus. The goal in the end is what we find in verse 28, so that God may be all in all, reigning over every square millimeter of, millimeter of everything that exists. This is the purpose. The resurrection sets in motion. And we see this uh, twice in these verses. You find it uh, in parallel verses in verse 24, and then again in verse 28. Verse 24 says, and it's a little bit obscure, uh, if you're looking at uh, the ESV, but it actually says that the end is comprised of two things. One, the end is comprised of that time when uh, Jesus will uh, deliver the kingdom to God the Father. And it's actually a second clause. The second thing is when he will have destroyed every rule and authority and power. Something that will happen and something that will have happened. That's what marks the end. It's the same thing that we find, but in reverse order, down in verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. It's the same idea, flip-flopped, A-B-B-A. He will hand over the kingdom when everything will have been destroyed. And when everything is subdued and subjected, he himself will be subjected. This is the goal of all of creation, that by subjecting all things to Jesus, God is subjecting all things to himself. Now, there are a lot of theological rabbit trails we could go down here. I'm going to try and avoid most of them. But it might be helpful if we think of an earthly kingdom. And just for the sake of making things more dramatic in your mind, think of a medieval kingdom with knights on horseback and castle walls and drawbridges and the whole nine yard, because everything is better uh, when we think of it that way. It seems so much uh, more alive. And so there is this kingdom where a good and just king reigns over his people. He loves his people. He cares for his people. He actually gives them all that they need, but you know how people are. People have rebelled. They've cast off the righteous rule of their true king. Now, this king is within his rights, by all accounts, to ride forth on his noble steed in fury and vengeance and reclaim his kingdom by force and wipe out the malefactors. But he loves the people. He cares for the people. And so instead of doing that, he appoints his son. as his ambassador, as his representative, with all the authority of the king, all the power of the king to go and to work peace for those who are for peace and to put down those who will not bow the knee. And the son rides forth and he does this work and he reclaims the kingdom. And when all of his work is done, there is nothing left for the son but to turn back and to report on his labors. And here is what has been reconciled to you, O father. And he hands over the reins of the kingdom back to the father. Now, in a small way, every analogy breaks down, especially when we deal with 
humans and sin. And if a, a human king is standing in the place of the righteous and true king, the Lord, we're going to get sidetracked. But it's at least a picture of what's happening here. That's what our reigning king Jesus is doing right now. After his resurrection, he appeared to his people and he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And so he sent out his ambassadors into his territory, into his kingdom that is rightfully his by power and by authority. His ambassadors making their appeal for God, be reconciled to God on behalf of Christ. That's what he's doing now. He is ruling and reigning, even from where he sits at the right hand of the Father. But there will come a day when he returns, and his labors and his work to mediate will be accomplished. There will be a day that is coming where peace has, the time for peace has ended. And all the enemies of God are done away with, and Jesus will present all of his finished work to the Father. What will he present to the Father? What is the kingdom he will hand over to the Father? He'll hand over his people. You've made them a kingdom of priests to our God. That's what it says about God's people, about Christ's servants. They are the kingdom where he reigns. And he will present them spotless to himself and spotless before the throne of glory. And he will hand over the kingdom to the Father that God may be all in all. A reconciled people, clothed in righteousness, restored to the Father, beholding his face without sin and without fear. And his conquest will have been finished when the end comes. But all the promise of this conquest is already present in the resurrection, you see. The fact that every rule and authority and power must be subjected to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was at the resurrection that human authorities were put to shame. When we flip to John chapter 11 and we read the story following that time when Lazarus was raised from the dead, and because he was raised from the dead, the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together and plotted to put Jesus to death. And we know it's not going to go very well. That's what we call foreshadowing. He raised someone from the dead. I know what we'll do. Let's kill him. That'll deal with the problem. And so we'll plot and we'll scheme and we'll hand him over to the Gentiles and he'll be crucified and pierced and he'll be put in the grave and he will be gone. What does Peter say? Acts chapter 3, they killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead and when he was raised, their plot was undone. In the resurrection, human authority has been vanquished. God's reign over all that he has made is solidified. There is no man that can stand in the way of what God has purposed for those who love him. He will bring his purposes to completion. The resurrection is also where demonic powers are undone. Trace the story of death all the way back to the garden. You find another scheme in place. It is a plot by the powers of hell through the mouth of the serpent to whisper that lie into God's people's ears. But the Lord's really holding out on you. 
He doesn't actually have your best interest in mind, but he just wants to use you as a plaything for his own enjoyment. And what you ought to do is strike out in independence and take what is good by the hand. And in a million ways, in a thousand temptations, that same lie has whispered its way into the heart of every person who's ever lived. The temptation to abandon the Lord and to seek our own salvation and our own best interest. But at the resurrection, that lie of Satan is exposed for exactly what it is. Because we see the one who is not ashamed to be united with his brothers, to take upon himself the guilt of their sin, to be given over unto death, and he was raised. Proof that God will stop at nothing. He will stop at nothing to complete his purposes for his people. And he always has their good and their best interest in mind because he loves his children. And the lie of Satan is undone. And the powers of hell are vanquished at the resurrection. So too is the dominion of human sin left toothless at the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, toward the end. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the resurrection has something to do with everything. All that God's planned, all that He's promised, it all finds its reality in the resurrection. That's the wide-angle view that Paul gives us today. But now we're going to zoom in a little bit and see uh, what the resurrection means for God's people. And just as the resurrection declares that God is reigning over all of creation, so the resurrection declares that God is reigning over all of your life. He has a claim on you. The way you believe, the way that you live, the things that you do, the things that you desire, God's claim on your life is validated by the resurrection. And it ought to make a difference. It ought to have implications for the way that we live and conduct ourselves in this life. Now, before we get sidetracked on verse 29, because you know we will, you need to see sort of what Paul's doing here in this last paragraph, verses 29 through 34. Paul seems to be taking up the same question he was asking earlier in the chapter. Uh, back in verses 12 through 19, Paul was playing the what-if game with the resurrection. What if it's not true? What if there is no resurrection? What if Jesus has not been raised? What if we have hope in Jesus only in this life? What then? What are the implications? And he seems to be returning to that same question again here. You see it uh, in verse 29. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? See it again in verse 32. If the dead are not raised, why should Paul suffer affliction in Ephesus? Why not spend his time partying? What difference does it make if the resurrection is true or not true? And the overall argument seems to be that the resurrection ought to make a big difference. It ought to change the way that we live. Because if the resurrection is true, God's claim on your life is legitimate. And Paul makes this point in three stages. He seems to be zooming in ever closer on the Corinthians themselves. But he starts by talking about the difference that the resurrection makes on some people. Now, verse 29 tells us, uh, it doesn't tell us who these people are, uh, but it does tell us what they're doing. Well, sort of. 
because after uh, 1,900 years of commentary on this verse, when he says that some people are being baptized on behalf of the dead, to be quite frank, we still don't know exactly what he's talking about. Uh, in the 3rd century, John Chrysostom didn't have it figured out. In the 16th century, Calvin was still weighing the options. In the 19th century, Charles Hodge summarized by saying, the darkness which rests on this passage can never be entirely cleared away. More recently, Gordon Fee suggested there are at least 40 potentially viable solutions. They all depend on how you interpret the individual words like baptized and the dead and on behalf of. And it seems to to deal with the question of what your definition of the word is, is. It's one of those situations. Depending on how you take each of these individual pieces, you could go in a lot of different directions. Now, all of that name-dropping to say, let's not be too dogmatic about whatever we come out with here, uh, that there should be a, a hefty amount of humility as we come to this passage, that we seem to not know exactly what Paul's referring to.